You're listening to the Real Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Real Life Church, including our gathering times in Yuma, Arizona, visit us online at reallifeyuma.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Bob Van Horn. Jesus is Passover. He's come into Jerusalem. He is celebrating Passover with his, his disciples. He's come into a city that is exploding. They're excited about him, and they're excited about the potential of him declaring himself Messiah. And people have treated him like a king. He's walked into Jerusalem on the top of palm leaves, people yelling his name, Hosanna, God save us, we pray. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they're trying to isolate Jesus away from the crowd so that they might be able to arrest him. And just like we said last week, their prayer request was finally answered because Judas has made a deal with the religious leaders to be able to betray him away from the crowd so there will not be a riot. Jesus has basically said during the Passover supper that Passover is no longer about Egypt and the Israelites escaping Egypt. The Passover, as often as they do it, is going to be in remembrance of him. He's introduced this thing called a new covenant, a covenant that benefits you and me, a covenant that's no longer between God and a nation, but God and mankind, including me and you. Last week, we discussed the one commandment. There wouldn't be 600 commandments anymore. There wouldn't even be 10 commandments, not even two commandments, just one to love one another like Christ loved us. And that commandment shows people, shows the world around us that we are truly his disciples, that when we have love for one another. So Jesus is at the dinner. And let me just suppose for a second, can you imagine as the evening gets farther and farther along that Jesus' demeanor probably starts to get really heavy? because he knows what's ahead. He knows what's about to happen. He knows the steps that are going to lead to this crucifixion, and he is going to take them. And I imagine somewhere in the evening, it got so much to a point, he said, let's go. Let's leave this place and go to the garden. Let's go to Gethsemane. Let's go find that place, and let's just pray, because I need to pray. Maybe you would understand why. And so he goes and prays, and his disciples, they're not so faithful. They do what's natural, what you and I would have done when we're tired. They went to sleep. And Jesus wakes them up on a couple occasions and says, can't you, just, can't you just stay awake for an hour? And then it happens. Here comes Judas. Judas bringing the temple guards or the temple henchmen, and the religious leaders are there, and I imagine the whole Sanhedrin is there. I imagine everybody who is important is there, and they arrest Jesus. Jesus stood there and said, here I am. You want me? Take me. And what's interesting is one of the texts said when that took place, all of the disciples fled. And maybe you would too. If they had just arrested Jesus, the one who was supposed to have been the Messiah, and you were one of his closest followers, maybe you would have fleed also. Jesus is brought before the high priests. 
and the high priests are there, the elders, the teachers of the law, they all come together. They're all now closer to Jesus uh, physically than they have been in some time. And they are looking for a reason to have him crucified. They want to be able to end all of this mess today. So they took Jesus to the high priest. But I want you to think about this for just a second. All the detail that's included in these four Gospels, yet where are the disciples? They're not there at the high priests when he's being tried. They're not there when he will stand before Pontius Pilate. They're not there. So how did all of this stuff get recorded? Well, supernaturally, first of all, because I believe God inspired them by the Holy Spirit. But I also want you to think about this possibility, that many of the people that are at these trials of Jesus, just like his disciples, are going to become believers at the resurrection. They're going to realize that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and they're going to become followers of Christ, just like his disciples. And they're going to retell the story. They're going to have conversations with Matthew. They're going to have conversations with John. They're going to have conversations and the story, because of all the details that's there, but I want to remind you, the disciples aren't there. Now, it says that the whole council got together to be able to question Jesus at this point. And they bring up lots of different statements. They bring up lots of different accusations. And to be truthful, none of them are substantial. They don't line up. Their statements don't agree. And they really honestly have nothing to be able to go forward with this plot, if you want to call it, to crucify Christ. And so the high priest finally has enough of all of this, and he gets right to the heart of the matter. He asks him, and I want you to understand something. Up until now, Jesus has not said a word. He hasn't answered the, the, the charges of being a rebellious rioter. He hasn't answered the charges of anything. But the high priest goes right to the matter, and he asks this question. The one that's so important, are you, Jesus, the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Now, all the other questions, Jesus just stood there. He didn't say a word. And really, if Jesus doesn't say anything right now, if he, if he doesn't admit to this, well, they're not going to have anything well to go to Pilate or anyone else for, for that matter, to have him crucified. They're not. They're, there's no charge. But when Jesus is asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, he looks at them and says, I am. I mean, he could have been quiet. He could have got out of all of this, but the one question they needed to hear was this one. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, and you will. You will see me sitting at the right hand of power. And I'm going to tell you something. When Jesus says that, the high priest, I mean, he goes absolutely ballistic. He knows with that declaration right there, he's got Jesus. He's got him right where he wants him. I mean, at this very second, at this very moment, 
he's, he has all the information that he needs to be able to take Jesus and to have him crucified. They punished Jesus, those religious leaders, that, that temple guard, the henchmen, if you want to call it. It says that they punish him. They blindfold him and they beat him with their fists and um, they, they ask him to prophesy, who hit you? Who hit you? Who slapped you in the face? They had all the evidence they needed from Jesus to condemn him to death. The only problem is, is they don't have the power to do that. So the scripture says, and, and the narrative goes on, and it says that early the next morning, okay, early the next morning, this would have been Friday, okay, according to what we understand about the crucifixion, there take Jesus, and it says, and the whole council, and they bind Jesus, and they deliver him to somebody who could do something about it, Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea, um, Jerusalem. Uh, he was in the providence of Samaria. He'd been the governor there for about seven years, and I'm going to tell you straight up, Pilate could not and did not stand the Jews. He would not. He gave them very little time, and I think that his favorite pastime was antagonizing the Jewish people and reminding them that they were the subjects of Rome. In the text in John 18, the talk about this conversation between the religious leaders and Pilate, but this is something I want you to note in this. This stood out to me uh, like loud and clear. The religious leaders are protective of their Sabbath. They are. It's Friday, and Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And they needed to get Jesus, well, they needed to get him killed and crucified um, so they could attend to their Sabbath functions and their Sabbath duties. Now, they had probably, more than likely, according to this passage, already made themselves ceremonially clean. In other words, they had taken all the preparations necessary so that they could participate in the Sabbath that was coming up on that Friday evening. One of the things that they were forbidden from doing, one of the things that they could not do was go into a Gentile's home. That was forbidden. That would make them ceremonially unclean. And so they have Jesus there, and they deliver Jesus, well, let's just say, to the threshold of Pilate's home. But they won't go into the house of Pilate because he will become, well, they will become ceremonially unclean. And here's what's ironic to me about all of this. They were so concerned about Sabbath starting at 6 o'clock and for them to be able to participate um, in Sabbath, okay, which was big. That's huge. It was what they did, okay? They were so worried about being physically clean, and yet they were delivering a completely innocent man to Pilate um, for crucifixion. And I got to tell you, I'm imagining the religious leaders at this point, they're scared to death about what is going to happen in this conversation. Because he is alone with Jesus, and Jesus has been able to win over the crowds, he has made the lame to walk again. Maybe Jesus is going to do one of those magic tricks, okay, that is going to convince Pilate that the religious leaders are all wrong, and Pilate's going to come out of this room, and he's going to have them all killed. I mean, that maybe that's what they're sweating. Well, this conversation takes place with Jesus, 
And so basically, Pilate continues this questioning of Jesus, and, and he gets down to the point. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus chooses to answer Pilate. He says, are, are, are you basically saying this because someone told you to say this, or did you figure this out all by yourself? And of course, Pilate's response was, oh, look, I'm not a Jew. I don't know, okay? But your people out there, they're not recognizing you as their king. And Jesus reminds Pilate very quickly that his kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate goes back out and he says, I find no guilt on this guy. Um, but they kept insisting. The Man, the crowd, the religious, they kept on insisting. And he says, well, he stirs up the people. I mean, he's been teaching all over Judea and he's been teaching all over Galilee. And when Pilate heard the word Galilee, he saw a way out. He said, Galilee. Ah, that's not my area. That's Herod's area. So, um, religious leaders, sorry, he's outside of my jurisdiction. I have no control over him. Take him to Herod. And they do. They take Jesus to Herod. And uh, again, when Herod is before, or Jesus is before Herod, he finds no fault in him, and he sends him back to Pilate. Okay? Uh, what an interesting thing that nobody can find any fault in him except the religious leaders of the day. So what Pilate does to appease everyone, again, is he says, I'm going to punish him. And, and, and the crowd is not happy about this, okay? Um, they don't want him just punished. And you've probably heard all about the, this thing called flogging or um, scourging. Uh, we've, we've seen it portrayed. Any portrayal that we've seen does not do it justice. You would take two Roman soldiers on either side of Jesus with a cat of nine tails, a long leather strap, with bone and pottery uh, sewn into it, and they would have hit him. They would have counted the number of strokes that they hit Jesus with because people died from flogging. They determined that 40 was going to do it. And so what Rome did, uh, and, and they did it so well, 39, we will not sentence him to death we will punish him to the fullest extent of our law 39 times. People died from scourging. They bled to death. And by the way, medicine is not all that great at this point. Not only would they, they bleed to death, but they would more than likely after that die from infection. They mutilated him. And they twisted a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. They beat him. They bloodied him. And then they brought him out and they portrayed him in front of the crowd. And Pilate said, there he is. I have nothing more I am going to do with him. What I believe probably broke Jesus' heart at the moment is to hear the crowd not say Hosanna anymore. It wasn't God save us, we pray. It wasn't blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The crowd said, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Crucify him. Pilate, with his hands tied, still is struggling to, well, to crucify this man. And the religious leaders, they're going to keep going. They're going to keep giving Pilate reason to be able to execute 
well, Jesus. And they respond back and they, they say, we have a law, Pilate. We have a law that he has to die because he has claimed to be God's son. When Pilate heard those statements that he claimed to be the son of God, it said that he was even more afraid. This is where his culture and his Roman myths and his Roman legends um, that he had grown up worshiping, this is where him and this guy, Jesus, intersected. And for someone to claim to be the son of God, this was threatening to the empire, and this was a big deal. And now he knew he needed to do something. And what he does is he takes Jesus back in and he decides to, well, question him some more. I don't want you to miss this, okay? A first century Roman soldier who has seen everything, seen people die in battle, who, he is going to question Jesus. He has the power in his hand right now to let Jesus go and be uh, whatever Jesus wants to be. And he begins to question Jesus. And it says in Mark chapter 15, it says that Jesus would no longer answer his questions. See, I want you to see this. Jesus had the power when he was with the religious leaders to say, I, he didn't have to say anything and he would have, they would have had nothing to take him to be crucified with. And now, right now, this is the point where he could have begged for his life. He could have begged for mercy. He could have asked Pilate, look, I don't want to be crucified. Kill me quickly. Begged for mercy. And he said nothing. And this infuriates Pilate. You do not speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you. Jesus does answer here. And he basically says, you have no authority over me other than what has been given to you from above. No doubt, when Pilate looked at Jesus, he was not crazy. He was not a lunatic. And Pilate took Jesus to the chief priests one more time to set him free. And the Jewish leaders used their final card that they had. They said to Pilate, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Now, that was a serious accusation. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And at that statement, I'm going to tell you, the religious leaders know they got Pilate trapped. They know. Remember, Tiberius is the Caesar at this point. There were spies all over that area that reported directly back to Tiberius. And so whatever Pilate did from now on, was going to get reported back to, well, Caesar himself. And he turned Jesus over for crucifixion. Now, it's interesting that all of this, this detail that you can find is in all of the scriptures, but what we have here is very little detail. They went to a place called Golgotha, 
and they crucified him. Something that was invented by the Greeks and perfected by the Romans. It could take people days to die from crucifixion, depending on how healthy they were and how well the Romans really, well, how well they did their job. The goal was never a quick death. The goal was always a prolonged death, an agonizing death, so gruesome that crucifixion would later be banned by the early church leaders. They banned any art form that depicted it. They banned it all the way up until about the 4th century when Constantine became emperor and all the people who had ever seen a crucifixion and witnessed a crucifixion died off. Because you seeing a crucifixion would never want to glorify it. C.S. Lewis writes this. I I love this quote. It says that that crucifixion did not become a frequent motive of Christian art until the generation that which actually had seen real crucifixions were dead. There was nothing glamorous about it. There is no way to romanticize it. It was horrible. And why do I say all of that? And why do I want you to remember all that? Because that death, of Christ on the cross, chosen by him. I want you to understand something. A lot of people in the early early Christendom died of crucifixion. Lots of people died from crucifixion. But only one person chose crucifixion. Our Savior on a criminal's cross died for people like you, and for people like me, for men and women and boys and girls, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of language. It's interesting that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come into the picture at this point. Interesting that they risked everything. By the way, they must probably hug their kids and kiss their wife and say, I'm not sure I'm coming home tonight but I'm going to go to Pilate. I'm going to ask for the body. I'm going to ask for the body of Jesus. And it says that they brought about 75 pounds of spices to embalm his body because they expected him to stay dead. You realize that, right? They embalmed his body in such a way that if he was alive, he surely would have suffocated. And at sunset, Passover began, and they made their way home absolutely confused, absolutely dismayed, and with no answers to about a million questions I'm sure that they had. Well, Pilate's not done yet. Matter of fact, the religious leaders once again show up at his house, and they're concerned. Yeah, they've, they've heard the rumors. Matthew 27 talks about this. They've heard the rumors that, you know, somebody's going to come and steal the body. So, Pilate, um, would you please make sure that the The tomb is well guarded. Make sure that it's sealed. Make sure that nobody has access to it. Make sure that, again, nobody comes because if that body gets stolen, we're going to have a mess. Uh, Everybody's going to say, you know, that he was supposed to rise again. See, they knew. And they got Pilate to give them a guard to go out and stand. I'm sure Pilate that night slept well, knowing that the Passover time was just about behind him and The riot that could have happened didn't happen, and 
I'm sure the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, they rested well that night, knowing that in just a couple days, everything was going to go back to the way it had always been before this rebel, this radical Jesus came. Up north somewhere, there's probably this guy named Saul of Tarsus, who was probably preparing another mind-bending message to follow Passover in the region of the world in which he was in. Emperor Tiberius, Caesar, he probably had no idea of what was going on. All he knew is it was going to be the way it had always been. Everybody, and I mean everybody, expected Jesus to do what dead people do. Stay dead. Little did they know that in a few hours, those names, Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, well, they would secure their place in history. Their names will be spoken for generations and have been spoken for generations in languages that you and I don't even know, in in places we don't even know exist, that for generations people would speak their name and each of them would be a footnote a footnote in the story of the rabbi from Galilee for what they intended as the end was just actually the beginning. The beginning of something brand new for the world and for you. And now, the plan that had been from the beginning was finally complete. And with Jesus' death, he ushered in a new covenant. A covenant that's for you and a covenant that's for me. A covenant set for your mom and dad and for your kids and your co-workers. A covenant that establishes a way to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. A new commandment. A new commandment that I believe could radically change the world if we were to live it out. To love one another like Christ loves you and like Christ loves me. Herein showing everybody else that's looking that we are truly disciples. And with his death and specifically with his resurrection, a brand new movement. A movement that you and I are a part of, that our moms and dads were a part of, that our grandparents were a part of, and if you have kids, your kids will be a part of, if you've got grandkids, your grandkids can be a part of, called the church. I believe in the movement. I believe in the church. I believe that Jesus shed his blood, and gave us the church and reminded us that we are to be on mission with him. Every single one of us, regardless of what flavor of church you attend today, every one of us is to be on mission with him in this brand new thing called the church. Father, thank you for this moment. Father, 
thank you. That's all we can say. Thank you that you uh, allowed Jesus to do this for us. That I don't have to do anything in order to be able to, to have and to enjoy this day. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you again for what he means to each of us. I pray, Father, that you will use these 10 messages to stretch us, to help us to grow in our relationship with you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. All right, I'll see you back next week. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at reallifeyuma.com or download the Real Life Church app. And again, thanks for listening to the Real Life Church Podcast.